everybody and welcome to another bp movie journal the show we do where we talk about the stuff that we've seen since the last time we did one of these i'm david i'm tyler holy shit (laughs) he's back i am yes uh but david don't get too used to it um so uh yeah this is this is a situation where obviously i've not been on the movie journal for a while for various reasons uh one is that i was i took a i was on safari as 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 people have uh, as we've talked about um but also just yeah we've kind of restructured so that uh i'm going to be on the movie journal less for reasons that i will just put under the very big vague banner of mental health um and uh for a while there was the idea that i wouldn't be back at all uh but the um but then a couple things happened one of them is like oh i kind of miss talking about these movies yeah but it's not a thing i can do regularly so david and i kind of work this out that i'll I'll be here uh I'll, i'll be doing it once a month and then david uh will be doing things on his own when he's able to uh yeah and and so we'll go from there but yeah uh, it's it's been a few weeks since i did one of my solo ones and that has mostly has to do with the fact that i moved and my life has been chaos and things are sort of starting to settle down a little bit so um maybe maybe next week or maybe in two weeks i'll do another solo one but uh yeah you'll be back uh once a month We, we talked about a a few different scenarios of how you uh um uh mixed like taking mental health time but also being a yeah. part of the show in, 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 in the way that i want you to and the listeners want you to so i think this is a, i think this is a good solution but also it's all you know fluid we can yeah we can change exactly it. we can change it whenever no one's committing to anything yeah um and uh and so yeah i just letting everyone know that that's uh, for anybody who's, who's been wondering like what's going on with the journal. That's, that's the situation. So, um, but, uh, I did want to, uh, this sounds is kind of a, a goofy transition in a way, but like, uh, speaking of concepts like mental health, you and I were talking before we started recording, um, about, uh, the shooting, uh, down in Texas, yeah. um, and feeling like we should, address it in some capacity capacity, but also not really sure how, I mean, you, you specifically said, and I, I agree with this, like we didn't want it to be some toothless, like, Hey, we're, you know, we're thinking about them. Okay. Now on to a bunch of shit movies that Tyler saw on planes, you know, like it's, (laughs) it it needs to be, I don't know. I, we, we wanted to talk about it in a way that felt, Mm -hmm substantial uh, of some, but without getting just too falling too easily into, into politics. Um, yeah. Um, yes. I mean, which I think by politics, I think I, what I mean is by falling into like, uh, the expected talking points. Yes, absolutely. I do yeah, think politics that, is, you know, it's a political answer to things. Yeah, exactly. Like I do think the answer, the answers, <clears throat> various answers that can move us, closer to the road to recovery and peace can be found largely in, in politics. I think yeah. uh, you mentioned mental health that obviously comes up whenever this happens. And uh, the 
other you know major elephant in the room here is 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 guns and and access to 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 guns that can um be that that can just destroy bodies and and yeah and, lots um, of them yeah specifically. And, and, and like i think as you were you and i were talking about we need to pursue pursue both you know you you were right. saying like before we started you were saying start with like what could have prevented this this particular right one and 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 i think uh i mean one thing that could have it's interesting being in california today as of today as of right now this shooter could not have gotten the guns that he got in the way that he got them in in california because he's okay. under 20 because he's under 21 but okay that is going before a an appeals court and that might that that 21 year age restriction in california might get struck down and it might so within the space of a couple months you might an 18 year old might be able to buy guns legally in california again sure as, as they could once before but um uh so you know there's there are uh, uh even those solutions you know can get struck down in in, in courts because you know are the sort of American identity and its relationship to guns is very deeply rooted and is, yeah. is, is going to be um, a hard sell for, you know, there are people like me, you know, here's the thing. I have never even touched a gun in my entire life. Right. And that's not out of such, I, mean, I am like, you know, generally opposed, but that's not out of, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm pro gun control, but, when I say I've never touched a gun in my life, I mean, literally it's never come up. Like I've never right. been in a situation where I had the opportunity to lay hands on a gun. And I think that's like the, the cultural divide here that there are people who literally, you know, I was why you weren't on this episode. It was a movie journal did without you, but I watched a documentary a while back called bring your own brigade. That was about, um, it was about the Cal- like California fires in like 2018, like the campfire and the, whatever the Malibu or was the Malibu, the campfire and the paradise, Anyway, basically there were two huge fires, one in Northern California, one in Southern California at the, on the same day. And this documentary is about them. And then like the paradise, California, like, um, community is a very like small rural, very conservative community. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, this director who's a, not only a liberal, but a Brit was like fascinated by some of the people's reactions. Sure. The number of people she interviewed who said, when the fire was coming, I grabbed my guns and my ammo and I got out of the house. Like that's, that's the thing they yeah. thought to take with them, which is like, th- that's the hurdle that we have to a- acknowledge is, is going to be, is, is so difficult with getting gun control passed is, is, is that it's such a part of people's lives yeah. um, that um, I'm, I'm, I'm very pro gun, gun control, but I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the difficulty of, of convincing people that said, as you, again, as you and I were talking about this, of, we've had a lot of mass shootings over, over the years, and it's been just over 10 years since uh, Sandy hook. Um, this one seems to be moving the needle. You know, I don't know if it's the yeah. aggregate or if it's just the, um, the horror of it or, or some combination, it seems to be moving the needle in, in in a way that we haven't seen in response to mass shootings before i i I do think this call me pollyannish if you will i do think we will see some change i don't think it's going to like 
wake up tomorrow and it's going to be you right. know, the, 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 the laws that you have to like, you know, I've been reading about laws in other countries from Australia to Japan to, to the UK um, uh, and how difficult it is to get uh, guns in those places. I don't think we're going to wake up tomorrow and have those laws in place, but I do think the needle is moving on, on, on guns because of this. And I hate to sound like I'm saying there's a, a silver lining to these 19, you know, uh, murders. That's not what I mean to, to, to imply, but that's just my, my observation i am feeling somewhat optimistic about about actual change yeah some and, sort I, of and i do think that um because i i agree with you i think that sadly when this happens you know it's sort of stays in the in the news cycle and stays in the conversation for a short time and then it's on to whatever the next thing is and i hate to be like uh, ah the media i'm not blaming the media it's just the, that's the actually nature sorry of... to center it up because okay. i know i just talked for a long time but that might be another reason why the needle is moving on this one is because you said on to the next thing well the previous thing was buffalo right now we've got the the next one is another mass shooting i think that right. might be another part of the reason why people just feel like something has to be done because yeah we haven't even even our short attention span uh, uh, culture hasn't moved on from the last one yet. Yeah. And the, uh, so I think, I think you're just going to get more people talking about it. And my hope is that because I, despite being, uh, you know, like I think of you as like a liberal who, despite being in favor of gun control has always had, has never been quite as like, for lack of a better term, anti-gun because you're, there's a punk rock element to you and we're going to, we might need to fight against the government. I know that's, that's a reduction of of what you've said before. You know, there there is that like, you know, the, the tree of Liberty water from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants, the the whole Thomas Jefferson thing. Yeah. I, 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 I understand. I have a bit of that, but really I think more it's the fact that I, I think unlike a lot of the, you, you know, I was raised by conservatives. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I, even in opposition to them, I, I do have a tendency to see things from that point of view. Sure. Even though I, even when, though I disagree with it. So I think that's uh, maybe why I've always come across as being uh, a little more, at least sympathetic to the sure. second amendment type uh, sure. uh, people. Um, even if I do disagree with them on the issue yeah. itself. And, and on the flip side is like, I'm, I was also raised by conservatives, but I was not at least as far as my, my immediate family, it was not a gun family. It was very much, uh, I would say for the most part, we were uncomfortable around guns. Like the idea, we never had one in the house. We never considered having one in the house. I definitely am at that point as well, uh, for myself. Um, but, uh, and so I, while I'm very much in favor of people like having, as much freedom as we are able to afford them um, when it comes to stuff like guns, because it wasn't part of the culture that I was raised in. Although once you get into extended family, then you, you get that. Uh, I get that. But frankly, there's a, there's some gun violence in my extended family in some, it's usually self-inflicted. Um, but in one instance, it was not. And you know, so it's like, well, okay, well, there's my, my family is not untouched by this. So, uh, I, I definitely, um, <clears throat> I'm not nearly as again, for lack of a better term, pro 
gun uh, as as some people are. And so, you know, I, I definitely am not in favor of just kind of doing like a, a blanket, like, let's just, let's do everything, you know, everything that's absolutely possible. I'm very much in favor of like, okay, well, what is something that could absolutely practically, like you mentioned the, the idea of like not being able to get one under 21. My first thought is like, yeah, that works for me. That's, that's at least something, you know, it's like, you can't drink until you're 21. Like it, and people will talk about like drinking and driving. It's like, okay, well, let's, Let's not have people drinking until at least they're 21 legally. Obviously people are doing plenty of that beforehand, but, um, not me. Is that (laughs) for a moment? I was like, wait a second. That's not the David I know. Uh, are you trying to rebrand, um, as a person? But yeah. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm definitely open to different ideas about gun control. And then, and, and also something that, that, you know, fellow conservatives say is that, you know, they talk about the idea of this being a mental health issue, which I, I would say it's not exclusively that I think that's part of it. Uh, but then the next question is for, again, for my fellow conservatives, like, okay, well, in what way is it a mental health issue and what can we do to prevent that? Because that's going to mean some kind of government, uh, program to help, uh, people with mental illness. So not, not as a function of like trying to detect things early, but about just treating people, uh, who might be in this position and, and, and then maybe in a larger cultural sense, trying to destigmatize the idea of, of seeking help if you feel like you might need it. Um, and so, yeah, my, my thoughts, and I'm sure there, there are plenty of, of conservatives that would call me a, a, a rhino, a Republican in name only, to which I'll say like, well, technically I'm libertarian, but I guess my, I know some libertarians that would fucking hate me saying anything like this, mm-hmm. but like, you know, I, I do think that I'm, I'm, as Milton Friedman would say, like, I'm not an anarchist. I think government has a role to play. And I think when dealing with something like mass shootings and the sheer number of them. It's like, I think, okay, this is not, I really don't think this is something the private sector can do. This is something government is uniquely positioned to address. So let's address it in multiple ways. And, and I do think it's a multi-pronged situation. It's not merely mental, uh, mental illness, nor do I think, is it merely a gun issue? Because, you know, there are, as you've, as you've talked about, like there are generations of people who have like owned guns and they've never done anything, you know what I mean? Like they, they, they are as responsible as you can possibly get. So it's like, okay, well, obviously we don't want to demonize those people, but at the same time uh, there has to be some kind of solution. And, and frankly, I leave it to people who are smarter than I am and have a, a deeper understanding of, of what goes into uh, both practically and mentally, what goes into a mass shooting. Um, the thing is not, we want to get to mental health, but the thing is not, you're talking about like, yeah, you don't want to demonize responsible gun owners and I don't either, but I also want them to be okay with having a few more hurdles, just like you, yes, like yes. it's, 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 you know, you have to take a, you have to be licensed to drive a car, you yeah. know, like, you know, I, I think the responsible gun owners maybe, uh, do have a, a bit of a moral duty to, to speak up and, and, and say, we, we would pass these tests, you know, right. we would jump clear these hurdles to be the responsible gun owners that we are, if it would keep people who don't, who can't be trusted, uh, uh yeah. 
from getting the guns. But how do yeah. we determine who can't be trusted? I think this is, um, you know, you pointed out how I can be sympathetic to libertarian causes on certain issues. <laughs> on certain well, issues, yeah. Uh, I will point out well, one thing where, where you and I tend to be um, on the same page, and I think this actually, uh, as more libertarians feel this way than I think a lot of the left gives them credit for, is uh, a general distrust of police forces. <laughs> Sure. And and I and I, I think um, part of destigmatizing mental illness and making mental illness a part of regular life is is taking some of the funding away because police forces are way over overfunded. You know the uh, I read somewhere. Don't quote me on this because it's you know Twitter's not real life. But sure. uh, uh, <laughs> the police force in the, I haven't said the name of the town in Texas out loud because I realized that this is the byproduct of being someone who only reads news and doesn't watch or listen to news. I, I have no idea how to pronounce the name of this town. Sure. Sure. It starts with the U, uh, but something like 40% of the municipal budget of this town is I read, uh, goes to law enforcement and they, hmm. you know, didn't stop this. Right. Um, and so I think taking some of the funding away from way overfunded over militarized, uh, uh, law enforcement and putting it towards, um, mental health, services that you yeah. know that you know you call 911 for the cops you should be able to call 211 and have you know right now in LA if you call 211 like it, you can get to like private mental health organizations through that but there should be a response team yeah um so part of it i think is taking the funding uh, away from places they currently exist and and moving it towards um ongoing uh, uh preventative mental health Right. Uh, issues but also i think um that if you want to keep the funding with the cops i i think cops should be trained you know cop training is what it is but also cops should be trained as social workers you know they should they should have yeah. to um they should have to read the same books and take the same tests that my wife had to had to read and take to be a social worker which is what yeah, she is. You know, she works with adoption services with the county, um, uh, in in foster care. They don't call it that, by the way. Um, uh, but uh, th these are just some uh, uh, ideas, and I'm uh, hoping that these become less, you know, lefty Twitter talking points and more actual, actual debatable policy ideas B because again it sounds like i'm saying like the good thing about this shooting that's not what i want to to to, to say but um I, I i do hope we get some of these ideas uh, a little more a little more traction yeah absolutely and and my hope is that it's not merely a as you say like a lefty talking point i would like it to be a, a righty talking point as well not but not merely like okay, let's, let's be reactionary towards the lefty talking point so much as like, eventually you, you have to s propose solutions mm. yourself. You know, you can't merely say, Hey, this is what's going to happen. It's the cost of freedom. And it's like, okay, sure. I, I guess I see what you're saying, but it's a cost that we're, we're having to pay pretty frequently. Yeah. And and I'll, maybe uh, maybe that's not necessary. So what can we do to make it not necessary? And this is um, not my uh, thought. I'm paraphrasing uh, other people's thoughts, but living in fear 
does reduce the feeling of being free. Sure. You, you know, and, and there is something to be said for freedom of freedom from fear and, and, and some peace of mind. Yeah. Uh, adding to the feeling of freedom. Okay. Let's talk about movies. Indeed. We've got that's, that's a lot still, of movies yeah, to talk still about. Went, but we, I tried to keep, we tried to keep that short and we are just windbags and, and, and went long. So, uh, yeah. Why don't you, um, kick us off since you haven't been here in so long. Boy, oh boy. Oh, yeah. Shit, I also forgot check my Twitter or go to LA taco.com, uh, um, which is a, a, a great sort of local journalist, uh, journalistic website and also has good taco coverage, but they, um, put together a list and I, and I retweeted it of, um, funds you can donate to just to like literally help the families of these, these victims and the, and the survivors of, of both this shooting and the Buffalo shooting. Okay. Indeed. Let's talk about movies. So as I was looking at my list for the movie journal, I saw like what the first film was to talk about. And I was like, what? Because it's just like, surely I've talked about this, like this and the second film. It's like, I have to have talked about this. Right. Like, and, and you know what, now that I'm, now that I'm, I checked on the second film because it's a film that I, that I, I went to a press screening for. So I wrote a review for. Um, so let me yeah. make sure. Cause maybe, maybe in actuality, I no, I guess I didn't talk about this one either. That's crazy to me. Because what was the, the first, last? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Cause the first movie that I'm going to be talking about is one that I saw in like mid March. Like that's how long it's been since I've done a movie journal. And I realized like, yeah, that's true. Cause like, mid-march we're still kind of covering uh end of year stuff and then right. i was out of town for uh, a while and then uh, i wasn't doing uh you know i wasn't doing movie journals so uh yeah, the last so, yeah. movie journal we did together was on march 10th oh, boy yeah so here we go uh so my first film i'll try to and it's so interesting my first and second film are so similar okay and i did not intend for that to happen my first one is Ruben Fleischer's Uncharted, uh, based on the video game franchise, which I have no experience with. Um, but uh, unless uh, they did cut a scene where Yoshi is driving around in a uh, in a go kart, that I know, I know that I know how that works. But uh, but yeah, so uh, and I'll say this: like Ruben Fleischer is is a director who I think is is he's imperfect, but he does have a sense of fun that I usually respond to. And so uh, I saw Uncharted because I was taking one of my trips uh, away. I, I was taking a trip to Bakersfield um, and just, I hang out at a, at just like a, a hotel. I read and I yeah. go see movies. And this was one of the only movies that was like playing at the local theater that I hadn't already seen. So I went to see this. Uh, it stars Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg and it's, I won't say it's a lot of fun. I'll say it is fun. Uh, there are some fun sequences. It definitely, I was vaguely invested uh, in what was happening in the film. Uh, I would say the movie is largely forgettable. Um, there's only a couple moments that are like really impactful from a visual standpoint of a couple of fun set pieces. Um, there's, a, I mean, if you're, you know, if you're, a fan of Indiana Jones, you will definitely 
enjoy aspects of this, like the idea of, of, you know, searching through catacombs and that kind of thing. So I think there's an inherent fun of that. Um, but by and large, I think the film is, is at best fine, uh, with a couple moments of, of like genuine, like, Hey, that's pretty good. Um, and I do think, you know, it's, it's definitely sort of a, a, a two hander between, um, uh, uh, Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg, which kind of leads you to wonder like, okay, is Tom Holland, is he able to carry a movie on his own? That isn't a Spider-Man movie. And I think he's very charismatic in, in this film. And I think he's, he's uh, pretty solid. So I, I think I would, with a lot of reservations, I would, I would recommend the film, like don't go in expecting it to be uh, amazing, but it's, you know, an enjoyable way to pass the time. You know, I um, just, um, I just checked my own, imdb page which is very anemic mm-hmm. uh but even more anemic than it used to be because i used to have a credit for as a as a production assistant on one of the uncharted games oh because i was a production assistant at the place where they did the motion capture got it and then i i worked on a number of or and i didn't work i mean i was just like putting out lunch for people and shit and like running sure. errands i was i wasn't working on it but i did that for a number of games but for some reason for a long time uncharted like three remember? i don't know maybe an early one uncharted two was the only one that i got uh, uh a credit for but now that's not even on AMD, imdb anymore but i really? never had a i never had a credit for my favorite thing that I worked on in that job, not again, that happened at that job while I was PAing there, which was the Jackass video game. Sure. Oh, because, that's fun. Because I actually got to take a smoke break with Steve-O. Yeah. Yeah. How's he doing? I, uh, he was not doing great that day because they were doing a lot of physical stuff and he was yeah. like worn out, but he like, they're in like their mocap suits sweating. So he had yeah. like almost completely in to go smoke. He had like almost entirely disrobed, which means that means I have seen steve-o's like giant back tattoo of steve-o yeah in, in person like nice. right at, you know arm's length uh, yeah that was that was the coolest thing that i got to witness while i worked at that job sure which was otherwise uh, not a fun job david i have an imdb pro account i think it's time to uh restore restore the yeah. the backs uh again i account. don't even remember which which uncharted oh, it was okay. that, they, that they made there okay uh so that's the that's the first one to talk about. The next one is a film that I I, I reviewed for Battleship Pretension, which is uh, let's see, I don't remember the name of the directors, uh, Adam Nee and Aaron Nee's The Lost City. And so, if you you know if you're uh, an Indiana Jones fan, check out Uncharted, and then if you're a Romancing the Stone fan, check out The Lost City, uh, which is like a, a slightly more romantic Indiana Jones. Um, but uh, yeah, and it stars Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum um, as this. She's a, a like a romance novelist, um, and he is her Fabio esque, uh, though not with any accent, uh, cover model. And the two have kind of a contentious relationship. She uh, is a widow. Um, he has been in love with her for a while, um, but he can't really say it. She just thinks of him as like a, a dumb guy, uh, and so she gets uh, pulled into this. Uh, adventure where like she had sort of stumbled on like a real thing in one of her novels. And so Daniel Radcliffe playing uh, an eccentric uh, megalomaniac. Um, I guess most megalomaniacs are pretty eccentric. I don't think there's a lot of grounded megalomaniacs, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so he kidnaps her and, and takes her to this place and Channing Tatum like goes to try and save her. And so the two of them are, are sort of stuck in the jungle. Uh, 
falling in love sort of more than anything. It's like, they're just taking each other more seriously. Um, I'd say by and large, I didn't really like this movie, but I will say, I, I think I gave it more of a negative review than I think now. Um, when I think back on it now, I do, they do have uh, some pretty good chemistry. There are a couple moments that I laughed out loud while, uh, while watching. Um, I think more, more than anything, I just wanted it to be a little bit sillier. Um, but it just falls victim to, uh, in the same way that not that it's meant to be a parody, but like when you see the movie walk hard and you see that it winds up just being by the end, like a sincere biopic of a guy that never existed, this, like it takes like the emotional stakes seriously, which is fine. Except that like, that's not really the part of the film that works best. It's the comedic chemistry between the two that works best. And, um, and I think we were talking about this. Yeah. We were talking about this with uh, Chris Mancini recently. Like yeah. it feels like it was maybe meant to have slight, uh, a harder edge. And there's a couple choices you can see where it's like, okay, this feels like it could have gone further and maybe it was meant to. Um, but yeah, so it's not necessarily a film that I would recommend. Um, but you know, like uncharted, it, it has some nice, it has some nice moments. Neither of them are particularly memorable. Um, so I, I think I would not necessarily recommend now that I think about it, I probably wouldn't recommend either one, but if you were to find yourself watching either one, you might have a, a an okay time. Uh, all right. Um, I, uh, I, I started, I'm counting this as a movie cause it's a criterion release. Okay. Uh, I watched the 1979 Italian, I guess, TV miniseries called, uh, Christ stopped at Eboli. Okay. Um, and, uh, it is, uh, I guess there is a movie version on that. I don't remember if you can watch the movie version on the disc, but criterion has restored it to its four hour, four episode miniseries length. But weirdly the DVD menu doesn't give you like, it doesn't work. I said DVD, it was a Blu-ray. The Blu-ray menu doesn't work like a DVD or Blu-ray tv disc you can't just like it it's like it's like there's a movie it's a two hour a 220 minute movie yeah that has like at, at every you know hour or so it has like end credits and the opening credits of the next episode but it's not broken up it seems like such a weird choice i assume it's a weird choice when i read what it was i thought when i went to the menu it would be like watch episode one episode two episode yeah it's a movie but it's got the anyway that's a not a complaint about the movie or the kind of the, the, the show itself, but uh, uh, just a weird observation about the way that Criterion uh, presented it. But the, the story, um, like I said, it's 1979, but it takes place in, 19, in the mid 1930s uh, where a, uh, a man who uh, for uh, political reasons has been exiled from Rome to the countryside. I guess this is something they used to do, which is so funny to me that he gets sent to a town where people like, live and like so those people are like oh i guess the place where i live is considered a punishment <laughs> but anyway um he he gets exiled for uh, political speech or, or or political action or something um uh, and he gets to this this uh tiny town that um is kind of i, I think the movie is making a case the the, the town itself is maybe uh an argument in favor of his political views because it's a very corrupt little 
uh, little place um, where the people in charge don't actually know what they're doing. They're in charge because of favors and lineage and things that have passed down. Uh, and the fact that he has medical training, even though he in Rome had not worked as a doctor, he has medical training. He sort of becomes the town doctor because he's way, even his like, like little training from school makes him way more qualified to be a doctor than the two doctors who actually live in the town who just have like ceremonial positions or whatever. Um, So it's over the course of the series, which, you know, it has this political uh, um, inflection point, but uh, over the, the, the series just sort of is a, an ongoing slice of life in this small town, but you see this guy work his way up in the town in, in, in by being uh, an, uh, a doctor and, and an actual, like a representation of an institution of officialdom that the people in the town can actually trust, which is not something that they're used to. And so he, he, he works his way into the good graces of, of, of the town and even of, of the sort of corrupt mayor of, uh, of the town. Um, but it's, it, it's quite good. Uh, the star of it um, is uh, the actress name is Jean-Marie Volante, who um, if you've seen Italian movies of this era, you've almost certainly seen him. I know him mostly from the starring uh, role in investigation of a citizen above suspicion, which is also a criterion release. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's in like a lot of the, uh, according to his, it's been a long time since I've seen a man with no name trilogy, but I guess he's in fistful of dollars and a few dollars more. Um, he's also in a bullet for the general, which is a fairly Western that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was clearly around at this, at this time, but he's a um, fantastic leading man, just a, a handsome stoic faced, a, st- a sturdy uh, guy to hang your four hour movie on. So uh, yeah, glad I watched all, all four hours, all four episodes of Christ stopped at Eboli. All right, so we're about to get into the section of movies uh, that I watched on planes. Okay. So, in fact, most of these are that because not only did I take that trip to uh, Africa, but shortly thereafter, I then took a trip to Florida, and that's a fairly long flight, so I watched some films there as well. So, um, and... As we've discussed, there is a uh, uh, there's a mentality uh, when you're on a plane, which is like, well, look, this is this little screen in front of me is not the ideal place to watch a movie. So I'm going to watch some stuff that I probably wouldn't have watched otherwise uh, with with a couple of exceptions. Um, But first, we will talk about Jason Reitman's Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, a film that had gotten okay reviews. Um, And so I went in not expecting much and I was correct. Um, I mostly did not like it. It has, it has some nice moments. I think Jason Reitman is a very capable director Um, and, and the occasional moments of like real like fear um, as these characters you know, characters who don't believe in ghosts are being faced with some some pretty dark and spooky imagery. Those moments work really well. Um, and I think the cast, by and large, is is pretty solid. I think they they all do a pretty good job. Um, but I do think it's it's interesting that they told the, that they chose to tell the story they did, because 
it it is uh, not not just a retread i mean it is truly a a sequel to uh the first film like you're dealing with like gozer and you know these other like the, the main like ghostly villain that they fought in the in the first film and so it's like oh okay so that's that's back uh and which means all the like iconography that comes with it is also back and you know that's that's fine but it it doesn't necessarily feel like an an organic choice it feels like a calculation from a story standpoint like hey this is what worked in the first one let's do that and it's like well the second Ghostbusters is not particularly good, but at least they chose like a different, you know, a, a different story to tell. Uh, combined with the fact that like, man, this film is just in a way that I increasingly have little patience for. There are just so many, I guess you'd call them Easter eggs, uh, visual cues, references. And it's just like, it's already called Ghostbusters. And you're already doing the same basic story as the first one. You're already incorporating characters from the first one. What more do you actually need? You know, uh, but no, they have like, hey, here's a bunch of books that are stacked, you know, vertically. Isn't that we all know what that's from? That's from the first one. And just like, oh, and here's a here's a a, a candy bar wrapper because Egon uh, ate a candy bar in the first one. It's like, wow. Yeah. At no point did I get the impression that he was like some kind of candy bar junkie. And it's just, it's, it's just very frustrating when it does that. Um, because I do think that in some ways they do uh, pay a nice, a nice tribute to the first one, particularly in regards to Harold Ramis. Um, but yeah, for the most part of the, the film is just kind of, I don't know. It's, so much of it is well done, but the core of it is just so unnecessary and just self-referential in a way that I just have no patience for. Um, another film that I watched. Oh, that's right. You're doing two. Yes. Yes. Uh, another film that I watched on the plane was Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. Now, this is one that I would have preferred to see in the theater. I missed it. Uh, and so I figured I'd throw it on while everyone was asleep. Um, and did you see it? I forget. Yes, I did. I, okay. I liked it. Uh, I really liked it. Um, it's, it's definitely, it, it pushes a lot of my pleasure buttons, the kind of mystery that we're dealing with the imagery, the intense imagery that comes with it. The, the, the main character who's just becoming increasingly unhinged. Uh, I like I, all of that is, is my kind of thing. Um, not to mention, I, I like the the idea, and this is something that was explored in like uh, Woody Allen's uh, Midnight in Paris. Uh, there is this idealization of of the past, like, oh man, I I'm I was born in the wrong era. I wish I could live there. Uh, and then uh, our main character sees like some of what that would have been like. Now the story is actually very specific to the character that she's sort of. Uh, identifying with and investigating, but, um, but just sort of the larger attitude towards, I'd say women, like at this, you know, in this part of London in the 1960s, it's like, Oh shoot, maybe this isn't quite so 
uh, ideal. Um, it's easy to scrub that away and focus on like the fashion and the movies and the music and all that is great, but there, you know, there's always going to be some, some tough things that you will be very happy to have moved away from, uh, when you look at the past. And so I think the, at the core of the movie is that, and I think that's a really good theme, uh, especially these days. It's interesting that I watched this right after ghostbusters, which is all about looking at the past yeah. and romanticizing yeah. it. Um, and uh, but also just, yeah, visually, so many sequences, I think, are well done. So many. Uh, I, I loved its use of color. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I was really I was really pleased by it. I don't think it's a perfect film by any stretch, but I do. Uh, I did really like it. And I like that Edgar Wright is is branching out and kind of challenging himself. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I, there's, yeah, I have my reservations about it, uh, too, but mostly I really, uh, uh, really enjoyed it. I, I always enjoy, even when I, you know, I, I still think like my least favorite non-documentary Edgar Wright movie is still baby driver, but even yeah. that one's still a lot of fun because yeah. he puts a lot of time and effort and thought into, um, constructing his movies visually and yeah. we've gotten to a point where that is so rare in like yeah. um you know sort of main shot i don't i'm not sure whether you would consider last night in zoho because that's like what it's like focus features so it's like one of those like not technically studio but essentially sure. studio movies yeah. um at that at that level there's there's just not uh, enough people making like big entertaining genre movies that are also uh, so so well crafted. Yeah, you know. Uh, all right. Um, moving on to a documentary that I missed five years ago when it came out. Uh, it, it came out at the time of the 25th anniversary of the 1992. Um, Rodney King verdict and the subsequent riots. So I waited five years and watched them in the, like right after the 30th anniversary. Sure. And that's uh, John Ridley's let it fall. Uh, the full title, let it fall Los Angeles, 1982 to 1992. Hmm. Um, and it's interesting to compare it to the other. I don't know if you saw, if you remember the, there were two documentaries that came out on the 25th year anniversary. Um, the other one I actually did see uh, in the theater called LA 92. Oh, right. And yes. They're, such completely different approaches. LA 92 has no interviews, no talking heads, anything like that. It is completely constructed of news and other camera footage from the time that it, it, it like meant to sort of just immerse you in what it like, uh, how these things looked and felt in the moment and piecing together the day of the riot, you know, through news coverage, let it fall. He's much drier. And as the subtitle um, suggests, it it leads up to the right. The, the, it doesn't get to the right until the last, like, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty, it's like two and a half hours, but it's still like, you, you still got an hour and a half of, or more of the movie that is about 1982 to 92. Like here's like the, the sort of recent history of, black Angelinos and the police and black Angelinos and Korean American Angelinos and, um, and, and all of these different uh, ingredients that went in. And it just felt like uh, John Ridley, I mean, John Ridley has been as a writer, been working for decades, but he really sort of, his name became his name 
10 years ago when he wrote the screenplay for 12 years a slave. Right. And it feels like since then, because he also created that ABC series, uh, that anthology series, American crime, <laughs> not American crime story, which right. is the Ryan Murphy one, American crime. Um, and it seems like he's sort of taken it upon himself to be this sort of like even keeled explainer and surveyor of race relations and other social issues in, in America. And um, yeah, I would, I would describe let it fall as like even handed and calm to a fault. Sure. Um, uh, 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 but I mean, I, like I learned something, but it almost feels like it feels like a supersized version of something you would like sit down in one of those dark rooms in a museum and watch, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> it, it felt like just a very long version of that. Um, the only thing I will mention because five years have, have, have passed. Um, and now I'm forgetting the guy's name. Damn it. I knew it. Obviously this doesn't come up. Uh, COVID hadn't happened yet when this thing was, right. was made, but did you know the guy who shot the video of the police beating Rodney King? Um, was, I mean, I, I don't want to send this, say this in like a, uh, mocking way, but he was an anti-vaxxer who died of COVID. Mm. Um, like he didn't die of COVID in 2020. He died of COVID like at the end of last year oh. after like repeatedly publicly stating that he uh, hmm. would, would not take the the vaccine. Sad, sad story. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, I just, uh, <laughs> that didn't obviously didn't come from the movie, but it's just something that sure. I, that I learned after it happened and have been fascinated by. All right. So now we're, hmm. we're going one at a time, right? We're one at a time, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So next for me, so uh, my uh, one of my traveling companions to Africa, uh, Scott, uh, who might be listening to this. Hello, Scott. Um, Hello, Scott. <laughs> yeah, uh, he recommended, much to his own surprise, uh, he recommended Guy Ritchie's Wrath of Man, and he said that at the very least he recommends it from a story structure standpoint. Oh, okay. So it's like, and he was just, he was flabbergasted that Guy Ritchie could make this movie, uh, you know, cause Guy Ritchie who, you know, used to have a very clear um, authorial vibe, I think has, has really become sort of a director for hire. I forget that he made like the Aladdin live action film. Oh, right. Like, yeah. And didn't he make like a Robin Hood movie or something? I believe he did. Yes. With, I think that's the one with Taron Edgerton. Right. Oh no, Robin wait, Taron maybe Edgerton. he, maybe he made the King Arthur one. Well, with, uh, shit. Look, I mean, there's a, the they're both movie. super forgettable. Oh, I forgot there was a King Arthur movie after the, there's a Clive Owen one from like 20 years ago. That's yeah. No, Antoine this is Cooper. the one with, uh, Charlie Hunnam. Oh. Charlie Hunt. Okay, maybe yeah, you know Ritchie. what? That might have been Guy Ritchie. Yeah. Okay, I'm looking it up. Um, let's see. Okay. So let's see. He did. He did Man from Uncle, which I thought was pretty good. He did King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Okay. He did Aladdin, uh, The Gentleman. Yeah. Okay. So he did not do the Robin Hood okay. movie, but you know I what? The Gentleman he, it was not good. Yeah, he might as well have. Um, and so. Going into Wrath of Man, it's like I, I'm I'm intrigued, and you know what, I'm on a plane. Let's do it. It's pretty good. 
it's, and you know what? You're I not totally the first person I've heard say that. So I'm, I'm, de- yeah, I'm definitely, I, I think, I think it was Matt Zoller sites who gave it four stars. Um, and I know it has, um, I'm looking at the cast list yeah. and you have to go on, on IMDb at least you have to go like a dozen names before you find the first woman, but, uh, um, that's about right. Yeah. But the first woman named is Neve Algar, who I loved in censor. I don't know if you remember that British, uh, uh, horror movie from early last year. I did um, not see it. Uh, she's great in, in censor and, and, uh, um, I remember thinking like, I wonder what else she's done and, and seeing that she was in this. Yeah, it's it's a good cast all around. And and I definitely agree with Scott when it comes to the structure of of the film. It really uh in many ways it, it unfolds in, in that in a way that just kind of makes sense where you're seeing a part of a story and you're going to be and you're left with some questions and then we go back in time a little bit and tell this from a slightly different perspective and that answers some questions. And then we go further back and it's like, Oh, okay. All right. This is actually all very, and it's all very interesting. So I do, I really do like the structure of it. Um, it took me a while to warm to the tone of the film and the, the dialogue style. Cause everything was just so heightened the dialogue, especially but eventually I got to a point where, and I don't say this lightly, the dialogue and the tone of the film and even the structure, this feels like it could have been written by early 2000s David Mamet. Like it has there heist Spartan Spartan, especially I'd say, okay. um, because heist there's there's like a, a cleverness to it uh spartan does have that but it often has like characters just like just using dialogue as like a punch in the face and that's how this it's often very feels. Spartan is what it is one could say that yes um and that's that is definitely how this feels at times and it took me a moment to get on board with it but then once i did it's like okay this is not this is a it's very violent. It's very, very gritty, all that sort of thing. But this is a movie. You know what I mean? Like it's not meant to reflect reality. Like all the characters are archetypes. The situation is a movie kind of situation. And it's, it is definitely, it's definitely good enough for me to recommend much to my, much to my own surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just, uh, yeah, it's, it's a hard film for me to classify. I, and I definitely, you can see some of, of Guy Ritchie in there as far as like what we think of him as, but like, this is, I think undoubtedly the heaviest movie he has ever made. Oh, wow. Um, and he's pretty good at it. So I I'd love to see him make more of this, but looking at his uh, filmography as I'm doing now, it looks like he's not interested in such things. Uh, all right. So uh, we're going to kick off a little journey here, although it's not okay. going to be all in a row. Uh, Cause I did, pepper my watching with other things but i i watched all six of the movies in the criterion martin scorsese's world cinema project volume three. Oh, okay we'll, we'll talk about all six of them today but you know like i said it'll get broken up at some point but i started with uh a 1968 cuban film called lucia uh directed by umberto solas and uh it's it's amazing it's um very long two hours and two hours and 40 minutes long but it's a it's a trip tick it's it's about 
three different women. Hold on. I have to look at the description because I'm bad with uh, Cuban history. Um, so the movie takes place the 1895, 1930, and, ni- and 1968 are the three settings. And it's three different stories all about women named Lucia who are in love with um, essentially revolutionaries, anti-colonial revolutionaries. You know, you've, you've, um, you've got different, uh, I mean, the, the, the first segment has like full on battle scenes of the sort of um, uh, Cuba's fight for independence from Spain. Uh, sorry. I don't know my Cuban history at all, Sure, but um, uh, uh, it's, so the, so that's, that's the structure of, uh, of the movie um but it's I, I, it's a it's a fascinating movie because its political sympathies are obviously with these revolutionaries but its personal human emotional sympathies are with these women who often are you know widowed by you know, not, I guess, minor spoiler, you know, in, in at least one case or widowed by, uh, the, the, the revolution, um, in the third, the, the then present day one, um, the, the movie is critical of the fact that this guy that she's in love with is he's a revolutionary and he's fighting for freedom, but in his home life, he's a, a controlling misogynist bastard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and he's like the, the, the push and pull between like the political sympathies and, and the portraits of these people as human beings, not just avatars for uh, political stances um, is really fascinating. But the most fascinating thing about the movie is uh, it's incredibly dynamic camera work. Um, it, the, it, it moved, the, the camera is often handheld and moving and, and, and pushing in in ways that seem urgent and almost anarchic, but yet it keeps finding these beautiful and startling and unexpected compositions. Um, and, uh, I would say, you know, I liked all six movies in this box set that we're going to talk about uh today but there are movies that are shorter than lucia which is the longest one in the, bo- in the box set that felt longer because this mm. movie has so much energy to it mm. so that's lucia all right next up for me is the movie directed by byron howard and jared bush and kanto so um oh i in- saw this one in general, I was I, I I caught up on a lot of 2021 movies uh, on these planes, um, and uh, yeah, Encanto is a, is a film that I had heard a lot about. Uh, I'm part of various uh, dad groups on Facebook, and when the film came out, uh, so many so many of them it's just like it's like all my kids want to do is listen to we don't talk about bruno like and and so i was like okay so i guess i got to be ready for that song when it comes up um but by and large i i would say i really liked the movie um it is it's a pixar movie right i don't know. or is it or is it disney i don't I've know anymore known. they they've they've yeah they've blended them pretty well at this point that i can't i i don't know and i can't really tell um I would say thematically it fits with a lot of other Pixar stuff. Um, like the stuff that it's exploring, which is this family that 
Each one of them has some kind of superpower that is meant to essentially serve the family and serve the community. Uh, and then we are, our main character is like the only young woman who doesn't have one. And she feels like an odd person out and all that. Uh, but the, and, and the house that they all share is starting to kind of split apart and people are trying to figure out why. And, uh, and at the core of the, of the film is this idea of, you know, we tend to think about people in terms of their abilities and, and how they can serve us, how they can serve the world. And when it comes right down to it, it's like, uh, what if somebody is unable to like, do, do they still have value as a person? And the answer is yes, of course they do. And, and I, and I really like that theme. And there are a couple songs uh, I don't remember the name of the character, but one of our main character's sisters is a very, very big and strong woman who can do every, who can just do all these things. And everybody's constantly asking her, like, can you do this? Can you do this? And she always says yes. And she likes feeling needed. And then she tells this story about like, what happens if I'm not able to do this anymore? Like, who am I? And so I really like the way the film explores those things. Um, and the idea that some, uh, some gifts are, are more welcome than others. Like the, the aforementioned Bruno, like he has this tremendous power that people like right up until the point that they, that it either inconveniences them or makes them uncomfortable or whatever it is. And as such, he, he's like a pariah in the family. So, and I think it's beautifully animated, uh, especially like when dealing with the house, which is like, has a personality it, itself. And so I, I'd say I liked, I liked the movie a lot. I do feel like some of the, it has so many characters that a lot of them are, are not particularly well-defined. Um, and it took me, it actually took me a while to get invested in the story, but by the end of it, I, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah. I was like still trying to figure out, I think it's just Disney. Okay. Look, looking at the poster it just says Disney's Encanto. Okay. Um, has Pixar ever done two movies in one year? Because they had Luca. They had um, they had the oh, good Onward Dinos and Soul. That's right. Yes, they had the Good Dinosaur and Inside Out the same year. Yeah. Um, but uh, okay. but I seem to recall that was because they didn't have a lot of faith in the Good Dinosaur, and that came out like at the beginning of the year, and Inside Out came out at the beginning, or it might be at the end. Uh, it might be flipped, but. Um, you know, everyone wound up talking about Inside Out and not so much about The Good Dinosaur, which I still haven't seen to this to this day. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen The Good Dinosaur. I saw Luca though. I like Luca. I still need to see it. That was a plain option, uh, but I uh, opted not to see it. And I liked uh, Turning Red, the more recent, most recent one. Right. Uh, all right. So moving on to the next movie in the Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project Volume Three box set, um, an Indonesian film from 1954 called After the Curfew. Um, so this is a very uh, interesting film. It has um, it's weirdly a companion to Lucia in some ways, and it's all, it's also about uh, revolutionaries, about someone who um, fought in uh, Indonesia's revolution and has now come back and is trying to uh, re-enter civilian life. It's uh, um, it, I guess it reminded me of some of the like the um, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of American Sniper, but right. um, the idea of someone who 
functioned well in a war type setting coming back and not being able to, to relate to the people who, for whom he was ostensibly fighting and the society for which he is ostensibly fighting um, is, is present here. This is a movie that I think uh, well before this became a more commonly explored topic is about what we now know as PTSD, but uh, of the six movies in the set, it's probably my least favorite because it just feels the most uh, dry and, and the most like, this is an issue movie type of type of thing. Um, anyway, so that's uh, after the curfew. Okay. Uh, pretty much right after watching Encanto, which Jen and I watched together, uh, which involves, you know, syncing up our screens, uh, you know, and pausing at exactly the same time saying like one, two, three press. Um, Cute. but right after that, we watched, uh, I believe, oh no, this isn't the first 2022 film, uh, so far. Um, but, uh, we watched Matt Bettinelli opens and Tyler Gillette's scream from earlier this year. Okay. And it's, it's very good and it does it does what the scream movies should do which while being uh frightening and in some cases like very very gory like like there's a, a scene of a character getting stabbed like through the neck slowly oh. um and you don't think it's going to happen and then it does and then it just keeps happening um so it's just like, okay, good for you. You're, you're committing. Um, but it also is self-aware and of course, commenting on things. And as you know, I did not like scream Four uh, because, because to me, it felt like, why are you still doing this slasher thing when horror has moved on to something else? Uh, and it just felt like it didn't fully justify itself. This one, on the other hand, is all about, I mean, they're talking about legacy sequels. They're talking about toxic fandom. Uh, and they're talking about like uh, going back to the original. And, and then of course, just like in, in these other films, you know, they bring in Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox and David Arquette and uh, put them in danger because, because like, well, we, and and relegate them to like supporting roles so that they can pass the torch on to the next generation. Uh, but it all happens fairly organically. Um, and it definitely, this, this film actually just like the first scream, in my opinion, felt like it was really contributing to the conversation. Um, specifically when it's talking about like fandom, because the concept of toxic fandom is something that has come about, uh, in the last 10 years, I'd say, uh, r- around the same time as these legacy sequels like uh, Star Wars and I guess the new Ghostbusters and that sort of thing. And so he- here by having characters talk about that and having and suggesting that the killer uh, himself is such a fan of the original Scream that he's trying to do justice to it, unlike you know, sorry, he's such a fan of stab, pardon me. Right. Uh, and he wants to, he wants to sort of, uh, re like, uh, oh my gosh, what do you call it? A reboot the series. But the only way to do that, since it was all based on real life is to start up 
murders again. Um, so it's, you know, the, I didn't find a lot of the characters really compelling. Um, and there is, boy, this is one of those weird things. This doesn't happen very often, but there's a, a big pivotal moment where a character says a line and is setting up the line she's about to say. Um, and I had, and as she was setting it up, it's like, oh, I know what, what she's going to say. And boy, that's a neat line. And then she says just a shit, nothing line. And it's meant to be treated as big. And I was like, oh man, I wish they'd called me. Uh, Cause the line in my head was so much. And this isn't a thing I say lightly. I don't mean to say like, I know better, but it's just like, it was more it, you know, you, you find this when like uh, when you when you give a, a, a story twist a little too much credit and then it's like, oh, I guess they're willing to settle for a lot less than I was. Um, but uh, but by and large, I would I would recommend the film, especially if you're a fan of the series. I think you'd like it quite a bit. I'm sure I would because I like all the well, yeah, I think I like all the screen movies, yeah. but I also liked uh, Ready or Not, which this. Uh, right. Yes. Made, which uh, I haven't class. seen. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, my. One and only rewatch of the episode uh, is also from the Martin Scorsese World Center Project Volume 3 box set. Um, Hector Rubenko's Pichot from 1980, um, which is uh, a movie that I saw in film school because I took a class on Latin American cinema. Uh, and it's a movie that comes up, I guess it's been a while, but it comes up from time to time. Um, especially when uh, like it came up with city of God, which is also about uh, Brazilian youth crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it came up with slum dog millionaire because I don't know if you remember Danny Boyle, like set up like college funds and stuff for the young actors. Cause the young actors were mm-hmm. actually from um, the, the slums uh, quote unquote that uh, the movie takes place in. Cause Hector Renko did, did not do that uh, for the young actors in, in, Pichot, the um, the kid who plays Pichot was like murdered at the age of seventeen. Oh um, my! Yeah, uh, it's it's very sad. Um, but uh, it's still a a, a fantastically uh, raw um, movie. That's it's about the you know Pichot uh, is a street kid who gets sent to like juvenile detention at the beginning of the movie and. And sort of that uh, uh, is where he learns to live a life of crime, and and uh, the movie follows him. It sort of has like that um, a Full Metal Jacket type of structure, where like you know, because like the first half of Full Metal Jacket is all basic training, and then the second half is Vietnam, and that's kind of uh, what Pichot is. The first half takes place in this detention facility or whatever, and then the kids escape, and the second half is about them. Um, becoming a little sort of de facto youth gang, uh, on the, the, the streets. Um, I would say the, the before I get into the movie, for the movie itself, what I want to say is, uh, I, I'm kind of glad there was a movie in this set that I had seen before because it speaks to, it's a testament to the powers of restoration <laughs> because the, the, whatever they the disc they showed us in, in film school, uh, was not great. Like my memories of how the movie looked got completely obliterated by watching how, how much sharper and more uh, beautiful and less muddy 
the movie is in in this um in this set which i think gives me more um appreciation for the 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 ever sort of vacillating visual style of the movie the way that hector rubenko goes back and forth between framing these kids as the like street tough, like badass movie inspired street toughs. They think of themselves as, you know, pointing, yeah. pointing guns, at the cameras like that going back and forth between that. And then actually reminding us that they're little kids. And this is like horrifying yeah. that, that their, that their lives are like this uh, um, is, is really, really fascinating. Uh, yeah, it remains a, a great movie, even better. It's even better than I thought it was. All right. Uh, next up for me. And, uh, after this, we'll, we'll take a break. Um, and it's a film that you've seen. I I don't know if you've talked about it on the movie journal and that is, uh, Tom Gormican's the unbearable weight of massive talent. Yes, I did talk about it. Okay. Um, I, you know, with a film like this, with, uh, Nicholas Cage playing himself, and kind of falling into an action movie, you, you definitely, you can't help but go in with an expectation of like a level of silliness um, that the film both does and does not, that it's an expectation that the film both does and does not fulfill. Um, it, at some point, uh, you know, cause it's about Nicolas Cage who, you know, is being paid to go to a, uh, a guy's birthday party in uh where is it is it spain Mallorca. yeah Mallorca, yeah, yeah. Spain. um and while he's there he he gets involved in you know he, he finds that everything becomes uh, you know uh, a mid-level nicholas cage thriller uh or or action movie um and i think you and i talked about this very very briefly and that like i think i was frustrated i mean I'm not, that might be too harsh of a word but uh I was slightly bummed that the film like became that like sincerely. Uh, And then I think you pointed out that like, yeah, but, but if you're going to celebrate Nicolas Cage, modern Nicolas Cage, this is what it is. And you're also going to see that he commits fully to whatever it is he's making. And so he's committing to this. Um, And, and I definitely, I definitely see where you're coming from. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's quite enough for me to, to embrace that aspect of it, but it's still fun throughout. And Nicholas Cage is obviously like really on board with playing this fictionalized version of himself, but for, for my money, and it doesn't have to be an either, or for my money, like Pedro Pascal is the MVP here. Like mm. he plays this guy who is so pure in his childlike love of Nicolas Cage so much so that he, he delivers this monologue that in which the film guarding Tess is heavily discussed and there's an inherent ridiculousness to that. And yet also a tremendous sweetness and, and a very real depth to it. And I love how much he commits. And then of course the two of them becoming friends and that becomes kind of adorable uh, so that they have such fun chemistry together. There's like, uh, you know what? Can we just do like a lethal weapon thing where these two guys 
just keep getting into scrapes uh, because yeah. I would absolutely watch that. The, my thing about the movie is, uh, or, or my most positive takeaway about the movie is a reminder. You, you know, you look at Nicolas Cage, you look at the eighties, mm-hmm. raising Arizona, Moonstruck, Pegasus who got married. Like he was a comedy actor. Oh yeah. And he kind of seems to have gotten away from that. And if there's one good thing about unbearable weight of massive talent is that it reminds people that Nicolas Cage is very funny because the, the like, <laughs> buddy comedy the buddy drug comedy middle section of the movie where yeah. they're like where they they do acid together is laugh out loud funny it's it so is. funny yeah and and just like when he's playing like the the younger version of himself and just plays him as like i'm gonna be the essence of nicholas cage here right. um is is hilarious and it shows like a, an awareness of himself but still a, a desire to like it's like, I'm, I'm going to commit to what I'm doing no matter what. So it is a film that I, I do think that like, maybe there were too many elements. Like I, I honestly probably could have lived without uh, as much as I like Tiffany Haddish and Ike Barinholtz. Uh, I, I don't think they were, I don't think they required as much screen time. I don't think the characters required as much screen time as we got. Um, I think they probably could have been lessened a little bit, but um I liked that. Uh, first off, it's weird. Uh, Tiffany Haddish and Ike Barinholtz played a married couple in The Oath. So that's, oh, okay. uh, 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 I'm not sure how that uh, they ended up reuniting. But um, I do like that the movie, obviously, you know, there's references to The Rock and Con Air and all of those things. But I like the way it keeps working in references to things like Crude's 2 and Captain yes. Curly's Mandolin and stuff. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And what fascinates me is I bring that up because Tiffany Haddish is the one who mentions Crudes too. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But what, and and I think it speaks to the nature of, of Nicolas Cage and other actors like him who've been around for so long is like, depending on how old you are, you're like, you, you have completely different touch points for him, you know, Mm -hmm. for Ike Barinholtz, it's face off. And then for her, it's Crudes too. And what I do like is like, at no point do they ever mention that he has won an Oscar for leaving Las Vegas, like, because in the larger mindset, like who we're not talking about leaving Las Vegas, we're talking about <laughs> national treasure, you know? Yeah. And uh, like that, that the idea of him being this respectable actor is surprising to people. Um, and I think the film sort of treats it that way. And, uh, and so I, I, yeah, I, I did enjoy it. Uh, all right. Um, taking a break from older uh, world cinema for, Oh, and taking more. a break in general. Oh, yes. Let's take a break. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay, coming back. And like I said, uh, sticking with world cinema, but, but uh, newer stuff. I watched the- Coming back, but not that we went anywhere. Not that we went anywhere, that's right. There you go. Um, I watched a, a new Italian film um, called- Il Buco, which I think means the hole. Um, 
directed by Michelangelo from Artino. And um, like I said, it's a, it's an Italian movie. It's technically in Italian, but I like, there's almost no dialogue in the entire movie. So, uh, you know, if that's, if you're, if you're bothered by subtitles, you're probably not listening to battleship pretension, but if you know someone who is that, uh, that hurdle won't be there. Although the movie is definitely still an art film, uh, it is a retelling of an actual, um, cave exploration from, I think the sixties, um, this, uh, like rural part of Italy, these uh, spelunkers, speleologists is the uh, official name I learned from uh, reading about this movie, uh, came to this town and, and charted this basically hole in the ground that turned out to be at the, at the time, at least like the third deepest cave known, mm. like in, in no, known to man. Um, and the movie just, uh, the, what's fascinating about the movie, it's a, it's a period piece that feels at almost every point like you're watching a, a particularly well-made documentary. Uh, and I think it's because you don't have dialogue, you don't really have characters. So, so to speak, um, there's no, there's less room for falseness uh, to come in. And it's basically just a series of, uh, meticulously, meticulously composed shots, either of this town or of the inside of this cave, um, and it treats the actual exploration of the cave uh, with just as much interest as the speleologists hanging out. The cave, when we think of a cave, we tend to think of like a vertical hole in something, yes. you know. Yes. But this is like a hole in the ground that happens to go like 700 meters or whatever. Um, I don't know why that sounds so much worse to me because you can uh, just they're, fall they're in. Bo- yeah, I guess yeah, that's true. That's yeah. why it's worse. But there's a part where the, um, the speleologists are, are taking a break and uh, they're kicking a soccer ball back and forth over the open mouth of this, this cave. And that like, um, it's just like a fun, like moment that goes on for a long time where you see the, the, a wide shot of the guys kicking the ball back and forth. And then the director cuts to a shot inside the cave, looking up where you're just hearing them and you're just seeing the soccer ball mm. pass, pass back and forth over the, the cave. There's, there's just like, it, there's so many like beautiful, quiet uh, moments like that. Um, Il Buco. I uh, really enjoyed it. All right. Uh, okay. So I, anticipating going to the international Christian film festival. Uh, the night before I left, I went to go see, uh, Rosalind Ross's father stew starring Mark Wahlberg, um, a film that is, you know, rated R for various reasons. And I was, but is, you know, there were, there's like some buzz about it in sort of the, the Christian community. They're like, Hey, you know, like we've known about Mark Wahlberg's Catholicism for a while. he, you know, this is clearly a passion project for him based on a true story. So let's, uh, so I feel like, Oh, this, this might be a movie that it would be good for me to see. So I could be, you know, talking about it at the festival. Um, I would, it is, it is, I would say a, a deeply flawed film. I would say it's also maybe a little bit too long. Um, but I did like it. And one of the reasons that I like it fr- is, is because of my 
general awareness of um, of Christian film and the tendency in Christian film. Not that this would necessarily be considered that, um, but the tendency that like, oh, a character, you know, uh, converts and then suddenly their life is like a little easier. Uh, and that's something I've never liked. It always struck me as um, salesmanship to the point of genuine dishonesty. Um, and this is a film that really goes against that because it is about this guy who, who experiences this, this spiritual thing. And then like, feels like, I feel like God is calling me to be a priest. And then the moment he like heads down that path, uh, it's discovered that he has this horrible, uh, very rare illness that is definitely going to, it's going to kill him while he's, you know, when he's young, but also in the meantime, he's going to lose all kinds of motor function and, and that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and within that, like there, because he's not able to, uh, perform certain things that a priest uh, needs to do, uh, he might not actually even be allowed to, to, to do that. And so like, he's starting to wonder, it's like, you know, from a Christian standpoint, like why on earth did talking to God, like, why did you, are you just fucking with me here? Or like, wh why did you <laughs> call me to this when you literally aren't even going to let me do that thing? Um, and to me, like, that's, that's the essence of, of, of faith um, is, you know, what happens when things get, get, get tough. It's very easy, you know, to, um, I think, I think like in the, in the modern day, you know, the idea of there's no atheists in foxholes, uh, I think it's actually the opposite these days. I think it's actually very easy, uh, in the U S to like be a Christian when it doesn't cost you anything. And when you're going to like a nice mega church and you're like, all right, God has really blessed me. It's like, okay, yes. But then what happens if this person dies? What happens if this person gets sick? What happens if you get sick? If your job goes away, whatever it is, then it's like, well, why would God do this to me? And, and it, maybe, maybe there isn't even a God. And this is a film that actually engages with that. So I like that. And I do think that, um, Mark Wahlberg's performance. I mean, he's, he's giving it his all. You can tell that he is passionate about this character, passionate about the project. Um, Mel Gibson plays his father. And, and I think genuinely rather than the character being written as sort of this curmudgeonly type, but kind of lovable, like he's an asshole and you don't like him. And uh, the, the occasional moments of progress he makes are, <laughs> are pretty small. Um, and Jackie Weaver plays his mom. She's great. Um, and it's, it's by and large, I'd say a, a, a movie that's worth watching. As I look at Letterboxd, I see a lot of people who don't care for it. And this, and, and I guess that's fine. But at the same time, like, I don't know. It's it, when I look at their reviews, it, it, and this is not something I say lightly because so many, so many like fans of Christian film, they'll be like, well, the critics don't like it because they don't agree with it. You know, they have a problem with the faith. It's like, well, also it's awful there. Let's not forget that here. I think the film is the filmmaking itself is competent. The structure of the film, again, I think there's probably a few too many beats, but from a performance standpoint, from a, from a character standpoint, from a thematic standpoint, I think it's really solid. And as I look at some of these like negative reviews, just, you know, by users on Letterboxd, it does seem like, like they weren't able to sort of get past the hurdle of like, this is a, 
it's a it's a pro God movie. Uh, and they seem to, uh, at the very least, be approaching that with skepticism, um, which is fine. <laughs> but also there, I mean, that's a, I don't you know. You mentioned that part of your appreciation is because you have a sure. lot of familiarity with, with sure. faith-based movies to compare it to. So it might seem better to you than it does to people who haven't that's pr- watched. That's you know, probably the, true. I'm like fireproof or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I do, I do wonder if there's just a, you know, somebody, somebody rather cynically uh, pointed out, uh, sorry, uh, like a, a fellow Christian rather cynically pointed out that like, it would seem that like the only and I don't agree with this, but like the only way that like uh, that critics are okay with a movie about faith is if it's actually about doubt. Um, because then it's like, yeah, it's all about how uh, maybe we shouldn't have faith in this thing and it's good to question it. And so, but like when you come across a film like this, which is very much about like a character who is doubting, but gets past it um, that, uh, that maybe, uh, maybe that's, Maybe they don't like that. They don't like what it is ultimately affirming. They'd much rather get to the point of amb- of ambiguity. And I'm not sure if I, I don't think I agree with that because the critics liked, you know, um, a hidden life uh, for the most part. And I feel like that's a film yeah, of, yeah. in which the character feels affirmed in his, in his faith. But, uh, but yeah, so it's, it's definitely a film that uh, listeners and, and David as well, like feel free to, to watch it and let me know what you think. Cause it could be that I myself don't have a great perspective. I'm surprised to le- I did. I thought this was a full on faith based film. I'm surprised to learn that it's rated R because that's not normally the case with these, right. With those types of, is it just for language? Uh, there, there is a, there is some sexuality as well. Okay. Um, but it's mostly but language like R rated sexuality. I don't remember. I see. Okay. I feel like there might be some nudity in it. Oh, wow. uh, but now I don't remember. Well, now I'm definitely going to watch it. Uh, absolutely. This is so hard to come by. Now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's uh, change gears for this. Won't take long. This is a very slight uh, movie, but uh, I, you know, streamed it because I wanted something light to watch. I watched a documentary from 2018 called love and bananas, an elephant story. <laughs> okay. uh, which, the reason it caught my eye of all things is because the, director and the like on-screen host i guess of the movie is an actress named ashley bell who played the um the possessed girl in the last exorcism and she was in carnage park with our friend pat healy like right. she's essentially like a scream queen i know she was also in psychopaths which i didn't see but was also mm. by the same director as carnage park mickey something um so she's like a modern day sort of scream queen who decided to make a documentary about rescuing an an elephant in thailand and like uh there's one thing this movie like i described it as being like slight but also it is very upsetting to learn like if you're on vacation somewhere where they're like hey you can ride an elephant you shouldn't do that because any elephant that has gotten to that point has been horribly abused from a very young age to get to the point where you can ride it so that's something i uh definitely i I will never ride an elephant after seeing this this movie uh but basically um ashley bell is uh i guess passionate about uh, elephants and and she finds out from one of her contacts who uh, this Thai woman who runs a um, an elephant sanctuary in in northern uh, Thailand in the area of uh, Chiang Mai, which stuck out to me because we had um, Paul Walter Hauser on the show uh, a, a while back and he and 
the five bloods takes place in Vietnam, but they mm-hmm. shot it in the Chiang Mai area of Thailand. That's why I remembered that. Um, and so they, that's, uh, that's where this sanctuary is. And then, uh, but she f- finds out from this woman, like, Oh, this trekking camp, which is what it's called, where you can ride elephants. Um, they want to donate one of their elephants to us, but we have to go to the South of Thailand and get this elephant and get it on a truck and transport it all the way across the country to our sanctuary. And so the movie just basically documents that while giving you a bit of backstory on um, how truly bad for elephants, various forms of captivity are. Elephants are very social animals and being kept apart from one another in in captivity is uh, cruel and terrible for their uh, emotional and physical health. Um, So yeah, basically any tourist thing that involves elephants should probably steer clear. Yeah, you can actually visit an actual sanctuary. That's that's fine, I guess. Yeah, when you know when we were in Botswana, uh, one of the places that we stayed had a a very dense elephant population, and I think I might have mentioned this that like there was a, a at the end of the day, like we were already headed back to camp, and the driver just sort of on a whim thought like. Uh, let's stop by the river and see if there's anything there. And uh, there were like 70 elephants there. Wow. Like, and I had no idea that they would ever, that there would ever be like a herd that big. And he did say that this is, it's actually like, it was probably two herds that like, were just congregating in this area. Um, but yeah, it was, it was insane to, to see that. And so the yeah. idea of, anim- of elephants being social animals is a hundred percent true. Um, and also those, uh, another thing I learned from this documentary that I guess a lot of people know, uh, you saw African ele- elephants, which are even bigger than the mm-hmm. Asian elephants that are, uh, in love and bananas. Yeah. These, these things are very big. It's, it is definitely, <laughs> it's a little alarming. Like when there was one where like we were, we were on a boat and we, uh, we like pulled up onto, onto the beach to be kind of near an, uh, an elephant. And it just started walking like right towards us. And I was the one seated in the front of the boat and it's just like walking right up to me. And as it gets closer, like, Holy shit. Like you realize like, you're not really close to animals that big in, in life often. And it's very intimidating. Uh, And of course it just walked right past and it was a really, it was a really wonderful experience, but it was at first you're like, boy, this thing could like super kill me if it wanted to. Um, but, yeah. uh, well, I don't want to give the impression that the Asian elephants are like a bunch of little bad bars. Exactly. Yeah. They're still very big. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, not as big as African elements, elements, elephants. Uh, okay. Right. So yeah. next for me is Tom McCarthy's Stillwater. Um, this is I really another, wanted to uh, see this. it's another, this was another, uh, plane movie. Uh, not because it's, it's, I wasn't interested, but, uh, I, I watched it on a plane. Um, and I really liked it. I, I like Tom McCarthy by and large. And, um, and I've, I've, I've really responded to like the, the films, you know, I, the cobbler notwithstanding, uh, which I often forget about, but when I went into Stillwater, I remember thinking like, oh, this feels a little bit sort of outside his usual thing. Then I watched it and I was like, nope, it's, it's right in there. It's uh, I'd say the thing that he tends to explore the most is makeshift family. Uh, it's what you get with uh, 
the visitor and station agents and win-win. Uh, I think you get, you have that sort of with the spotlight team in the yeah. movie spotlight. And here you have, you know, a character who actually uh, played by Matt Damon, who actually is a father and he's in his daughter's life. She's in prison uh, in France uh, and uh, for a murder that she says she did not commit. And so he goes there to try to, to try to, uh, exonerate her and it's taking a while. So he decides he's just going to live there. And uh, so he moves in with this woman and her child. It's not a romantic thing, at least not at first. Um, and he becomes a father figure for the the kid and, and a husband type for the, the woman. And so it's like, Oh no, here we go. It's a, it's a, a sort of family that is put together through uh, unusual circumstances and they're trying to sort of figure each other out. And the fact that he is, you know, this very, uh, you know, this very Midwestern guy, uh, a very rugged, you know, people would say redneck in the midst of, of uh, Marseille, I believe. Um, and so like, but, you know, and so like uh, the, the, the French characters he comes in contact with are equally suspicious of him as he are, as he is uh, of them. And there comes a scene where um, the, the, this one woman is visiting. uh, So this, this woman, a friend is visiting and they're speaking French in front of Matt Damon. And then, uh, then one of them says like, it's like, "I, I just need to ask, did you vote for Trump? And he says, no. And she's like, ah, okay. He goes, I can't vote. I'm a convicted felon. And so it's yeah. a, it's, it's a nice moment and they don't go, they don't go down the path of who would he have voted for. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, it's moments like that, but like he is so essentially American in their eyes and in his own. Uh, and so, I don't know, it's, it's this really fascinating, the, the, this sort of culture clash, but the idea that these characters are willing to get past it um and that it's not merely a language barrier it's also just the way you approach situations um and that this character is hardly a saint he regularly does things that you're just like or says things like what are you what are you doing like you are making bad choices um and i feel like if this were a lesser movie it would have turned him into just a complete saint um and it really doesn't and it's a great performance by him his his uh, daughter's play by abigail breslin i think she does a great job because she also is not treated as a as a saint uh either and so uh yeah it's definitely worth watching i i, I really liked it uh, all right jumping back into the world cinema project box set uh, the oldest movie in the set is a Mexican movie from 1934 called Dos Monjes, which means two monks. Um, and it has a sort of a, a, a prologue at a monastery where there's a monk who is thought to be possessed by a demon. And then there's another new new monk who has just, just come to the, the, the monastery. And... Uh, uh, Weirdly, I didn't see this happening, but weirdly, the demon possession is kind of a red herring. The movie is not about that. <laughs> um, but uh, but this new monk goes to see the potentially possessed monk who appears to recognize him and grabs a crucifix off the wall and beats him over the head with it. <clears throat> and so then they like uh, basically the the two he survives. 
but the two monks get sent to, you know, they get separated like kids at recess sure, sure. or whatever. They get separated and the, I don't know what you call the head monk. There must be an, I know because in like in a convent, you'd have mother superior. Well, I don't know what sure. the head monk is called, but the head monk basically, this turns out this is just like a framing device because the head monk interviews them each separately. And we find out they did know each other from years before and they do have this backstory. And so the, the way the movie unfolds, it's a very short movie. It's like 80 minutes total. Um, <clears throat> but basically you see the same story. It's a Rashomon type of deal where you see the same story twice from each of their point of view of like how they knew each other when they were younger and how they fell out to the point where one of them would beat the other with a crucifix. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's, so it, it has this whole, um, spiritual beginning where you've got these monks chanting, trying to banish the devil from their monastery, but then it actually ends up being just a, um, uh, a melodrama about, uh, relationships. Hmm. Um, but, uh, I, I liked it. It's, it's, it's quite good. Uh, Dos Monjes. Our All director's right. name is Juan Bustillo Oro. All right. Uh, next up, uh, boy, uh, a film that I had not heard of, uh, but as I was scrolling through movies to watch on the plane, this one jumped out at me. It is Amber Seeley's No Man of God. Do you know anything about no, this movie? I was going to look it up, it? but I was like, you yeah. know what? I think Tyler's about to tell me about it. That's you're correct. Um, it stars. It Elijah. bothers me when you do that. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. I I don't usually look up. You know what it's about. It's usually right. like if there if you mention an actor, I'm like, oh, that name sounds familiar, but I can't place them. It's usually that. Um, in this case, uh, it stars Elijah Wood. It, it came out last year. Okay. Uh, stars Elijah Wood and Luke Kirby. I'd say primarily. Um, it's there, there are other characters played by, you know, W Earl Brown, always nice to yeah. see him, uh, Robert Patrick, but it's really these two guys. And it is, uh, the story of, uh, Bill Hagmeyer, who is, a uh, the FBI analyst who, um, got access to Ted Bundy for several oh. years. And the two of them are talking and getting to know each other and, so these are the Bundy tapes that, uh, uh, yes, yes. That, cause I watched that like four part Netflix documentary about Ted Bundy. And that's, right. that's the most interesting part is actually hearing him talk. It's yeah. A lot of it is, I mean, I, you know, we, we see scenes of him talking of, of the, the Elijah Wood character who plays the, the analyst, uh, him talking to like, you know, his wife and his boss and that kind of thing. Uh, and some of the, from what it sounds like, some of the conversations are sort of condensed and, and combined uh, from the tapes, but yeah, it's, it is based on that. And, and it's just really interesting to see these two guys, they are forming a friendship of sorts. And what's really interesting is to see, so Luke Kirby, who's an actor I'm almost completely unfamiliar with uh, plays Ted Bundy and plays him as like a guy who's just like, he's not an evil, he's not a mastermind, but he definitely can be cagey in a way that, uh, that can draw people out. And I think he also recognizes, um, what people want from him. Uh, and he just 
comes in with such suspicion and it makes him very intriguing. But I also like that he doesn't overplay him. He doesn't, he really, the performance is not sensationalized at all. Uh, he really does seem like just a guy who can be charming, uh, which people heard about, uh, which people said about uh, Ted Bundy, um, but also a guy who, when describing his crimes and and as he is trying to work out like why he did these, why he committed these, and and Elijah Wood is trying to sort of figure that out for himself and in the early days of profiling and that kind of thing, um, it's a really interesting film. I, to be honest, I'm not sure how much one can get out of it. Um, aside from it just being an interesting chapter in like examining evil and a person's evil deeds and why somebody would do it. And this idea of what makes some, you know, to me, I've always been fascinated with the notion of like, unless you're killing for money, part of me feels like you have to be a little bit insane to kill someone in cold blood. Right. Um, and I know that that's probably a little bit, a little bit naive of me. Um, and just, and so I guess, I guess that is maybe the point of the film is like really getting to the heart of like, what does it look like for a person who is sane to still commit such grisly crimes and be okay with it while still acknowledging the wrongness of it. There's a, there's a real complexity to it, uh, to the film. And I feel like it unfolds uh, patiently with a, with a very uh, methodical quality to it and great performances by both Elijah Wood and Luke Kirby. And it's, it's worth seeing for sure. The movie is arguing that Ted Bundy is sane. Uh, I, I don't know. Having, sane, having watched that documentary, I think of him right. as lucid, but I don't think, I don't know if saying is Le- legally sane, certainly right, right. Uh, enough to, to be, to stand trial and be executed and all that. Um, but, uh, but I think the film is exploring this idea of, of how lucid is he to get, to use your, your, your term. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's, uh, and when you hear some of the stuff he says, he does seem like just like a, a reasonable, rational guy. But then when you realize like, what he has done. And then when he really starts to talk about it, you're like, Oh, there's, there's more going on here. And I think it's safe to say that there is at the very least, I'm obviously uh, being euphemistic here. There's definitely something off uh, about him. Um, And it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's sort of like, um, it reminds me of that movie that was made about the Stanford prison experiment. Uh, a, yeah. a few years ago where it's a really interesting sort of reenactment of this thing that we all know about performed by actors who are just fully committed and into just exploring this, this horrifying aspect of humanity. Uh, and that's what no man of God really was to me. And, uh, and yeah, it's, you know, disturbing, uh, but it's, it's, uh, worth watching. Um, yeah, I, uh, uh, I like Luke Kirby. Um, he was on the HBO series, the deuce, which mm. got worse as it went on, but he was still, uh, he was still good on it as a, he was, uh, the sort of a government official who was tasked with quote, quote unquote, cleaning up times square, which really meant kicking out mom and pop businesses to make it safe for bigger developers. Got it. All right. Um, all right. Uh, next movie in the, 
uh, World Cinema Project box set, uh, 1967 film from Mauritania called Soleil O or O Sun. And uh, this movie is awesome. <laughs> this is my favorite movie from the set. Um, yeah, pretty pretty uh, comfortably. Uh, it's story to the extent that it's in, important is that it's about a, um, a Mauritanian uh, man who immigrates to um, Paris, I think. Definitely to france i can't remember if it is supposed to be in 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 paris uh, or not um on this kind of mission to find the like uh ancestors on his french side but really this is a movie i think uh would speaks very well to our moment of in the past couple of years of, of um, systemic racism and black lives matter and, and, uh, and, and um, the long, long uh, shadow of colonialism. Uh, but in a way that is not everything that I just said sounds like strident and, and dry. This movie is, uh, I mean, it literally starts and, ends with howling laughter that turns into screams it's um uh, often just non-narrative just a collection of uh like anti-colonial uh shouts of passion and depictions of of um of of racism in a way that feels not that like misery porn type of uh you know not the depiction of racism that is made for a white audience to a white liberal audience to feel good about themselves i think this is a a movie that is um an uh angry statement of a movie that uh i i found way more energizing and electrifying than um uh the sort of uh po-faced uh um movies about uh, about racism and, and and social issues that uh we tend to get around award season or whatever this feels sure. more like a uh it feels more punk i guess sure and before that existed because it's from 1967 but uh yeah directed by med hondo um yeah absolutely fantastic all right my next film uh one, uh, another plane movie uh, that I, uh, after, after no man of God, I wanted something a little lighter. Um, and so I saw Aaron Gadet and is it, I don't know if it's Gita, uh, pull a pillies queen pins. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm speaking of Paul Alterhauser, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, have you seen it? No, I haven't. Okay. It's, you know, it, it's, deeply flawed for a few reasons. Um, one is I feel like it's just kind of tonally all over the place and, uh, and I, I, it can't quite determine the type of comedy that it is. So like there, there are like scatological, uh, uh, jokes in it. And it's like, what, what are you doing here guys? Um, and unfortunately, almost all of them have to do with Paul Walter Hauser because, hey, he's an overweight guy. And, you know, 
all we do, uh, it's, you know, I, uh, I remember Ralphie May, a comedian that I don't particularly, uh, I didn't particularly enjoy, but he's like, he goes, he's like, he's like, I'm fat. All we do is all we do in movies is eat shit and fart. And, uh, and it's like, yeah, that's definitely how Paul's character is treated here, which is unfortunate because the character is the, the, he's written with a lot of love. Uh, not merely because it's, you know, it's not merely because I, I, I know Paul and I, and I like it, him as an actor, but like, um, his is the character that I find myself thinking about the most because he's this, I mean, it's a silly movie. It's a slight movie. It's, it's not, it hasn't been particularly well liked, but at its core, it is just telling this, these stories of characters who are just living lives of, of quiet desperation, you know, and they, and they're looking for some kind of out in the case of, uh, Kristen Bell, who kind of stumbles onto this potential like coupon scam, she she's unhappy with her life, and this gives her something to do that will, in one way, get her out of her life, but also is just kind of this exciting thing. And then Paul Walter Hauser, his character is like a a, a, a loss. What is it like a loss manager? Okay, there's a there's a name for it, but like. Loss prevention loss manager prevention. Who, who works for a, ch- uh, a grocery store chain. He doesn't work for, you know, he's not a security guard at one. He goes from one to the other to the other and kind of gives them advice and stuff. And he stumbles onto this coupon ring and he's like super excited about it because this is like costing his employer and undoubtedly many others like tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. And like, that's a big deal. So he's, so he reaches out to like the FBI and uh, the FBI here represented by friend of the show, Paul Rust. Um, oh, wow. And, but he's not taken seriously all at all. All the Pauls we know. Exactly. Yes. Oh, the Pauls we know. Where's Gil um, Martin? When does Gil Martin show up? Uh, I think he was originally cast, <laughs> but then they, they went with Vince Vaughn instead. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And so it's, and, and then ultimately like, the whole uh the fbi doesn't take it seriously but then when when uh hauser's character mentions like that this is stuff that's sent through the mail they're like oh through the mail we're gonna send you over to the post office and they will take this seriously and that's vince vaughn and his character is like very official but he also is accustomed to it's like it's the post office. No one's going to take the post office seriously. Uh, so it's like yeah, all these. But there characters... is the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. There is an actual law enforcement agency. Yes, there that, is. Uh, yeah, I, I I learned about that uh, only a year or two ago. That I and I find that fascinating. Yeah, and and the film like really so he and 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 uh, uh, Paul Hauser's character like team up to figure this thing out. So you have all these characters who are like in a way trying to prove something to themselves or to other people. And it is often quite funny, um, but there is a little bit of heart to it. Uh, and it just makes me wish that it had, it, it had had a better idea of what it was like of what it actually is. Um, instead of just trying to cast this wide net and trying to get every kind of humor you can find, um, you know, and, and yeah, I feel like it, it takes these characters seriously except for those moments where it really doesn't and just uses them as like the butt of a joke and i don't know it's it's a film that i found frustrating but i still enjoyed it all right um moving into the present day uh i watched a a new movie um 
called Resurrection, directed by Andrew Siemens. It has nothing to do with. It's this is not another faith based film. Oh, I'm out. Uh, this is a uh, a horror film, psychological horror film. Although I think those the kind of psychological horror part is is maybe kind of the weakest. Uh, Re- Rebecca Hall, who's great great actress that I sure. uh, love, um, plays a single mother to a daughter who is about to go off to college in this uh, impending departure um is very much upsetting her and it's at that exact time that a mysterious and clearly traumatic figure from her past played by tim roth starts showing up all of a sudden Mm. but we this is where i'm saying the movie feels kind of like there's some the psychological horror of like is this guy really there is she losing her mind and like hallucinating this this guy that's the stuff that i feel like is the crux of the movie but is kind of the least interesting like i don't like the 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 question of like how sane is she and how much of this is real um we're clearly meant to spend a lot of time thinking about that but that wasn't really what i was focusing on what i was focusing on is the two absolutely fantastic central performances you got rebecca hall mm-hmm. and tim roth yeah. and um things really take a turn uh the movie does it's it's a huge swing that it takes that works, which is basically we get, you know, this guy starts showing up. We know like based on her reaction, like there's something bad in her past having to do with this guy. And then we get the entire backstory in a single monologue, no flashbacks, no cutaways, just a long unbroken take of Rebecca Hall sitting in a dark room telling someone what happened mm. and uh, she fucking kills it. It's one of the most, uh, it's one of the best part of the movie parts of the movie, just watching Rebecca Hall give this monologue, which it, it, it helps that when we, when we find out the backstory of why she's so troubled by this guy, it's like, Oh yeah, that is fucked up. <laughs> um, so she's saying some really fascinating things, but it's just, it's a, it's a big swing, a big, ask for your your lead actor um and rebecca hall uh kills it and then once you know we've already met tim roth but once we know what has happened in their past his performance becomes even more uh sinister and and uh delectable uh Hmm. and and that's really the reason to watch this movie is to see um two great actors be creepy and be creeped out. Uh, um, uh, but it, yeah, I'm not going to go like, I'm not going to go into the story cause I went in completely unspoiled. And like I said, it's fucked up <laughs> and I don't. So I, I want people to remain unspoiled for uh, what we learn about their, their past, but um, definitely still a movie I would, I would recommend. Um, but it's, uh, it's strengths aren't what it would, they would seem to be in the, in the, a description of the plot would make it, make the movie seem like it is, the reason for seeing it is other than what it is, which is really just uh, a couple of fantastic actors. Hmm. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, the, the last, the last plane movie I watched, I was going to say you should have three more or two more. Including uh, let's see. Oh, including this one. I have five more. Okay. We, we, uh, we did some miscounting cause I only have two more movies left. Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should have done two, you know, uh, for the first few sections. Oh yeah. Um, we definitely did miscount. I'm an idiot. Okay. Right. Um, okay. 
So, uh, yeah. So I saw Lena Rosler's uh, bestsellers starring Michael Caine and uh, Aubrey Plaza. And um, what I'll say is uh, something that somebody, a, a listener pointed out to me that I don't think I quite realized about uh, something that I do um, is that I will use the phrase who gives a shit as an adjective. Yeah. Uh, yeah, talked about it before. yeah. Bestsellers is one of the most who gives a shit movies I've seen in quite a while. Um, it's, you know, Michael, Cl- Michael Caine plays this uh, reclusive, eccentric, uh, one could say crusty but benign uh, author who is meant to be, uh, you know, like J.D. Salinger. He, he's best known for like this, this one book many years ago. Uh, and Aubrey Plaza plays the, the daughter of his publisher and uh, the publisher has passed away and she's inherited the, the publishing house. And so uh, business isn't good. So she discovers that she actually still has a, she still owed a book by this author. So she like reaches out to him. And of course, first thing he does is like point a a gun at her. It's like, it's just, it's that kind, it's that level of like silliness and eccentricity. Uh, But then the two like go on a book tour together and, and, you know, he's like this crotchety old man who says stuff and says like, he says bullshit. And uh, so like, (laughs) and then of course that goes viral uh, because, because uh, stuff, the, the dumbest things in movies go viral. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, you know, Aubrey Plaza is not bad. It's, I, I feel like she's kind of going against like what I think of her as an actress. I think she's not bad. And Michael Caine's not bad either, but it's just, but who cares? Like I've seen this story so many times before and I, and it's just, it's nothing. It's a nothing movie. And I think what frustrates me is that like, and I don't mean to be morbid or anything like that. Like Michael Caine's an old guy. Mm. He's not going to be around much longer. Hey, you know what? If he's around like 10 more years, that's great. And if he's acting that whole time, that's great. But like, you know, this is, this is him in a lead role. You know, it's not him playing Alfred or something like that, uh, which he's very good at, of course, but he's good at everything. But like, this is, this is like a rare Michael Caine lead role. Um, and it's just, and it's for nothing. It's, it's, you know, it's, it, it wishes that we're, it we're finding Forrester, you know what I mean? And when you compare this to something like youth, which admittedly was like seven years ago, but like something like youth, which like really uses him well. And I think pushes him as an actor. Uh, it just, it, it feels like, man, you had, you've got this and this is what you came up with. It really, uh, it really frustrated me. It's, it is, uh, uh, not a good movie. Uh, all right. Um, next up, God, it's, we're going so late. All right. Um, next up for me, uh, one of my most anticipated movies of the year, uh, David Cronenberg's crimes of the future. Oh, um, and, uh, how exciting it's, it's it's great. I I definitely like, I, I hate to like, a talk a movie by addressing dumb criticisms but i heard a lot of talk on the way out of this critic screening of people being like oh that wasn't as weird or that wasn't as like shocking as i uh thought it would be and i think people like david cronenberg has a among people who don't maybe aren't as steeped in his work 
yeah his reputation is like oh yeah some fucked up stuff's gonna happen in his movies and that does happen but that's True. not the only thing his movies are are about right. um and crimes of the future is uh, uh without giving too much of the plot uh, away it is um about uh i guess a, a, a near future or maybe a distant future where um people are uh people's bodies are changing let's say hmm. um uh and there are some people who have chosen to embrace that about humanity there are some people who have chosen to try and fight against it to try and outlaw it there are like governmental bodies and and law enforcement involved in trying to keep track of changes that are happening to various people's it's like x-men uh, bodies um i literally like if you were to look at my the notes I took during the screening, I wrote like, like I made reference to the mutants and X-Men. Okay. Um, it, yeah. That's, I don't know if David Cronenberg is an X-Men fan and he was thinking of that, but it definitely, it definitely uh, uh, it evokes that. But um, uh, I, you know, Cronenberg being Cronenberg, he's um, not going to just stop at the body horror of people's bodies changing Obviously, he's going to have that, but there's also the psychology of what happens when people's bodies are changing. And I think the movie is, you know, a very like, like often the best movies that can be taken metaphorically. It's not a simple one to one allegory, but it is clearly inspired by the thought of things like, like climate change and how, like, um, what the future of humanity might look like um uh both physically and psychologically uh and one of the big things again Cronenberg being Cronenberg um one of the things he's very interested in in the movie is how is sex going to change when people's bodies are changing yeah. uh there's um uh, so you've got the Viggo Mortensen and Elias Sedu are the main uh uh characters you also got a, a large role for kristen stewart who very notably gets the and in the, in the oh. credits it's an and kristen stewart uh i like that for her that's good um but uh yeah i, I another thing i think people don't give Cronenberg enough credit for um is that his movies can be funny oh yeah <laughs> um uh, you know, I mean, Dead Ringers is a very disturbing movie, but also has like Jeremy Irons has some real howlers in that movie. Yeah. Um, and there is a part I, w- I won't give too many details away, but like someone sort of like comes on in a very classical way to Viggo Mortensen's character, and he says something along the lines of like, "I'm not good at the old sex." <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's plenty of like uh, weird stuff. There's a lot of yeah uh malformations and sex and and blood and uh yeah i think the people who were just dis- because there were there were stories that david cornbrew was like oh i expect there to be walkouts in the first five minutes of of the movie and uh on the one hand yeah something pretty brutal does happen about five minutes of the movie but on the other hand, i think that gave people the wrong impression of like this is sure. going to be like a this, a Serbian film or something like that. You right. know, it's, 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 uh, it's not a shock endurance test. It's a very, very thoughtful, uh, movie that, um, is 
sometimes quite gross and also sometimes quite titillating. And uh, most interestingly, it is often both thing, both things at the same time. <laughs> All right. Sounds great. Yeah, it, it, it um, is great. Uh, okay. So next for me is Sam Raimi's Dr. Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. So rest assured, everybody, the rest of my movies are all films that I got to see in the theater. They're all 2022 movies. This is very exciting for me. Um, and uh, I liked this movie. I liked it quite a bit. I, I, I definitely think I, I liked it more than than you did um, based on your, your letterbox review um, <clears throat> uh, uh, rating. Um, yeah, which I, I, I have added a review oh okay like yeah um yeah check that out check that out at battleshipretention.com yeah um and uh yeah and so i i don't know your your objections to it um i well i talked about a little bit with chris mancini uh yeah that's true that the basically the sam raimi parts of the movie and the mcu parts of the movie uh seem to be at war with one another i think I think I went in really expecting there to be not much Sam Raimi because I think he, you know, I think of Sam Raimi as a guy who has a very strong, you know, uh, authorial style, but also a guy who can play the game. You know what I mean? Like he'll make, did he make, is he the one that made Jack the giant killer? Um, uh, or, well, he made Oz the Great and Powerful. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of. Jack the Giant Killer was Brian Singer. It was, uh, right. yeah. Uh, but yeah, Oz the Great and Powerful. Like, you know, he's still he's still a, a visualist and and all of that. And so, um, but I think he he can tone he can tone himself down when he is required to. And so, I think I went into this expecting a lot less of him uh, than what I than what I got. Like, there are, you know, people have talked about like this movie being darker and it is, but of course a movie being darker is neutral. Like that's not a, that's not inherently good or bad, but I think because of where we're, because it's, it's Dr. Strange. I think one of the things that I liked about the first one is that like, there's so much, so much odd stuff in it and you're dealing with such cosmic, uh, uh, monsters and realities that you can go down this like this is definitely the one the 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 specific franchise like go down this path of darkness uh and so you know having these other multiverse doctor stranges that are dangerous and uh corrupted um to say nothing of the i think the very bold choice of like you're like we've seen marvel heroes fight each other before this is like the first instance though where one of them is a is the full-on villain like scarlet witch here is the bad guy like our our not merely an antagonist but like a genuine villain um who does some pretty horrendous stuff to beloved characters uh which we talked about with chris um and i wasn't expecting it to go i thought it was going to pull a lot of those punches when it came to her um and it didn't uh at least not to the degree that i thought it was going to and so i think i was just so pleasantly surprised um that, you know, we're so accustomed, like when I, when I saw the first guardians of the galaxy, so many people said like, boy, that's a, it's like, that's like a, a weird Marvel movie. It's like, yeah, I guess so. But it's a super tame James Gunn movie. Uh, <laughs> and I was frustrated that I didn't see more of James Gunn. I saw a lot more of it in guardians too, 
um, because I think he needed to prove himself to to Marvel. Sam Raimi, I think Marvel trusted him from the from the get go. And so there is so much more of him in this than I than I thought there was going to be. Um, I do still think that there's like, again, as I mentioned last week, like there's just there are so many moments of explanation because I think that's the Marvel instinct of like, well, we don't want to alienate people by not explaining things. So let's stop and do that, even in the midst of 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 an exciting sequence. And I think that's unfortunate. But for the most part, I I really liked it. And I thought that uh, that. Uh, the acting all around was, was really solid. Um, so yeah, I, I liked it. Okay. Uh, last movie for me, because we counted wrong. So you have, yeah. a, you have a three more. I have three two? more. Okay. Uh, okay. So last movie for me, last movie in the, uh, world cinema project flying three box set an Iranian film from 1972 called downpour, which is a, um, sort of dramedy about a, uh, a new teacher in a small town who, um, uh, develops feeling for feelings for one of his students moms but also this other guy in the town who's kind of like a, a wealthy bigwig in the town also has his eyes on on her so it's uh i guess kind of a love triangle triangle type of thing um it's 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 a it's a good uh fun lively movie uh what i really want to talk about is the fact that <clears throat> I, I didn't look i, I hope maybe I will read some more about this. I didn't look too far into the restoration process of what was done, but I should say all of these other movies, the other five movies in the set all had sub like new subtitles. This movie had old subtitles that were burned into the picture. Those were clearly Mm. not like newly created subtitles. And so it made me wonder where, like, I wonder if, this movie in Iran is not preserved. They were only able to find sure. a version of the movie that, that a usable version of the movie that already had English subtitles in it. Uh, because it is like, it's kind of like in a way watching like pre-code, it's very different, but to think of a 1972, a pre-revolution Iranian movie. Yeah. You, you know, um, and seeing it's, the movie's not by most standards in any way, like, risque or whatever right. but it does have like you know women with their heads uncovered and women like wearing skirts where you can see their 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 legs and stuff and you've got public drunkenness and like things yeah. that um you know post 1979 um uh, uh iranian officials would have objected to there's a reason that you know the iranian new wave of like the late nineties into the two thousands, like so many of those movies are about children because Mm -hmm. that's how you could like get away, like with telling a a story by, by like, um, uh, removing the suggestion of adult themes, (laughs) uh, from it. And this is very much, this movie has plenty of kids in it, but it is very much about a grown, um, sometimes horny, sometimes drunk man. Um, again, in ways that you and I would find quite tame, sure. you know, PG 13 at most, mostly PG type of stuff. But, uh, it was, it's fascinating to, to see this document of, of, uh, a more secular, uh, Iran. Um, and it's, you know, a good, like, uh, good for some chuckles and, and, uh, and, and some heart, heart, uh, string tugging as well. Downpour. That's my last movie. All right. All right. Here we let's, go. Yeah, let's uh it's the Tyler Smith show. Yeah. Buckle up. 
So speaking of multiverses, I went to see everything everywhere all at once directed by Daniel Shiner and Daniel Kwan, um, which I loved. Uh, Anybody who follows me on Twitter knows that I was uh, recently in a bit of a depression spiral. And one of the movies that got me, uh, one of the things that got me out of it was seeing this film, um, which is it's, it's very much the kind of thing. It's so interesting to watch Dr. Strange and then this, because even though, I, I liked a lot of the multiverse elements of, of Doctor Strange. It, it still seems so. It's like when you and I talk about uh, Inception, where it's like, mm-hmm. the, like this. This it's weird to think of of either movie as being unambitious, uh, but when you see something like everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once, and you see like what the concept of multiverses can be, which is like here's a multiverse where our main characters are both rocks, but they can still communicate. Uh, Here's a multiverse. uh, This is one that people have been talking about. Here's a multiverse where everything's the same, but everybody's fingers are hot dogs. Uh, Here's a multiverse where uh, this character, everything's basically the same, but this character uh, chose to pursue Kung Fu, that sort of thing. And, and there are just so many different, options that it really plays with the idea. It's like, yeah, you could do so there's so much uh, that you can do with the concept of alternate universes Uh, and the film's mythology, which is to say like characters that are able to uh, do something to like tap into the potential abilities of an alternate version of them elsewhere. Like it's the, the, the film has such a clear, set of rules within that it's there's a lot of ridiculousness like you know we've both seen um swiss army man and that i think is is a is a flawed movie uh but one that actually has a great deal of heart it's definitely has stuff to say about sort of the human condition while also being kind of sophomoric in some of its humor same thing here 100 percent uh there are jokes that i'm like this feels beneath this movie and yet Everything is so celebratory. Um, and I really, and, and at the core of it is this, this acknowledgement of like, yeah, like the, it's so easy to think of like all the different choices you could have made and, and the person you could have been. It's like, that's true. Um, but really what, what, what point is there to thinking along those lines? Unless of course you can incorporate that that this alternate version of you into who you are now to improve yourself and 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 to connect with other people and i and so i think the film does that extremely well even in the midst of being just kind of this crazy insane movie but it, there's just it's such a such a beautiful celebration of cinema and and humanity and relationships uh that it just it really as as a great movie tends to do uh it really pulled me out of where i was and uh and i was so grateful for it and i'm glad that i saw that instead of uh my next movie which i saw a couple days later which is robert eggers the northman um which is also in its own way celebratory um it's it's a you've seen it you reviewed it um yeah and uh you know, it, it's visually uh, remarkable, uh, great performances all around, um, but it's definitely pretty dour in some ways um, and very serious. I don't think it, 
it it certainly doesn't have the humor that you f- would find in the lighthouse. Uh, it definitely is a little bit more on par with something like the witch, but obviously it's, it's so much bigger uh, than that. Um, that said, it's still in the language and the sensibility and the uncompromising aspect of things um, of the story and the characters. Uh, it's still a hundred percent like a, a Robert Eggers movie. And, um, and what I really like is I feel like, you know, by the end, it's definitely, I tend to like movies about revenge, specifically when movies suggest that revenge just, it only, it only corrupts. Like that's the nature of it. And so like you come to the end of this movie at the beginning, everything seems so black and white. Who is the victim? Who is the perpetrator? Um, by the end, it's like, there are no winners here. Uh, you know, our, our main character has been so, um, I'll use the word again, corrupted, like has been so corrupted by his quest for vengeance and his, his refusal to see the, the complexities of, of, of his life. Um, and even though he himself has admits that like, I've, I've lived with this hatred for so long, I wish that I could, could go without it, but like, but that's been his defining the, the defining element of his life. And like, he can't, he can't get past that. Um, and so I will say, so, I mean, I really loved it. Like by the end, I, I love how frankly affirming it is um, that, uh, about the idea that like vengeance, like, Hey, I get it. Like, I get why that's appealing. I get why it's cinematic, but at its core, it just refuses to acknowledge the humanity of the person that you are trying to get revenge on, even if what they've done is tremendously inhuman. Um, and, but here's the thing. You can't guarantee that everybody in the theater with you is going to think the same thing you will. And so there's, there's a, I don't want to spoil it. There's a pivotal moment where our, you know, it would appear that revenge has been achieved after, you know, two hours and 15 minutes of really delving into the, the emotional and relational consequences of this mentality. So you'd think that like, by the time the, the, the vengeance has been achieved, it is, it is a joyless affair. Like it is perfunctory at best. It certainly is not a not any kind of victory, Nobody uh, told that to the guys behind me um, who, <laughs> when that happens and you know, the part I'm talking about yeah. uh, it's a very dramatic uh, image. Uh, one of the guys behind me goes like, yeah. And I was just like, and the other guy like claps, like let, like does just like a big one, a big Tom Cruise, one, one hand, uh, one clap thing. And I just want to be like, guys, what, what do you think this movie's about? <laughs> Cause it seems to me, look like this is pretty, pretty uh, accessible Robert Eggers. And yeah, I don't think he's hiding that things are more complex uh, than what we originally thought, but you Maybe these guys to be- took a number of, very coincidentally timed bathroom or concession stand breaks. Yeah. And they, they missed entire scenes. 
I would, I would absolutely love that. If by the end they're like, damn, man, that was great. That was like, you know, I felt like I was watching Apocalypto or something. Um, uh, and so the last film that, so I really, I really like the Northman and it's very much the kind of thing that you can, you can definitely see why Shakespeare would look at this story and see it as like something that he would draw inspiration from for Hamlet and the the fact that he looks at this story and says like oh this makes this would make for a great tragedy i don't know a lot of people <laughs> that are cheering at the end of hamlet but you know that's that's the nature of it so uh the last film that i saw was uh alex garland's men oh. um which what i'll say is you know at this point both as a screenwriter and as a director I know Alex Garland. I know what to expect from Alex Garland. And yet, no matter what you think men is, it is not that. Okay. Or at least it will not be that uh, eventually. Um, the film goes down a path that I, doing it wrong, I found it invigorating. Like every step of the way, okay. I thought it was a really effective horror movie. Nicely funny in a lot, like regularly actually um sometimes it's 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 a laughter of incredulity like you can't believe that somebody has said something or somebody is is doing something um jesse buckley i think does a really great job of like anchoring this film but obviously you have to talk a lot of, a, a lot about rory kinnear and what he is doing with the multiple characters he's playing um and eventually just all of this like so many other you know like so many other horror movies these days like it, it deals with concepts of guilt and loss and that sort of thing but at its core and the fact that it's called men like i mean i went in being like come on man like that title come on, men. come on men like i was really ready i was really ready to be like already uh, like my guard is up as far as like how, how potentially preachy this could be. Oh, okay. um, and yet, and yet he won me over uh, almost immediately. Uh, but also like, because at the, at the core, because I've read a few reviews after I saw it, I, I read a few reviews and, and people are talking about like, Oh, it's, it's about men in this regard or that regard. And I definitely think that like at the core of it, it, it really is about the concept of accountability. Uh, and the concept of, of responsibility and that, um, that uh, probably one of the most, one of the, one of the worst elements of men, honestly, and it's obviously like, I'm not speaking, not all men, hashtag, not all men. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I think that, that we, we have a tendency to deflect blame and say like, well, you know, if this weren't the case, I would have done the right thing. Or what it could be as simple as, you know, as simple and as awful as like, well, this woman was dressed mm. this way. So I, I, what choice did I have, but to say something. Um, and there's, a, there's, there's some biblical imagery at the beginning of the film that you see the, you see in the trailer where uh, one of the first things that our, our character does, our main character does when she arrives is there's a, an apple, uh, an apple tree there and she picks an apple and uh, the, the landlord uh, says, he goes, Oh, don't do that. It's, it's forbidden fruit. And then he says that he's joking. He says, I take as many as you want. Um, but it's like, okay, so that's, there's, there's some Adam and Eve stuff there. And 
if, if you know the story of Adam and Eve, you know, that like one of the first things that Adam does when like confronted by God is say like, I only did it because she did it. Like it, like he refuses to take responsibility, refuses to take accountability. And if you look at like this woman's relationship with her husband and with uh, these other men, like there's just a, cons- like the, the common denominator is a refusal to say, I'm to, I'm to blame, or at the very least, I share some blame. Um, and I do feel like, you know, with that commonality and then naming the movie what it is, uh, it really does. And, and looking at sort of the so conversations that are being had right now about like a certain kind of toxic masculinity, which is like, which confuses like boldness for brashness and and that sort of thing. Um, I think the film really has some interesting, some really interesting things to say and it's beautifully shot, wonderfully acted. And uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend it.